You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 139. In this episode of the podcast, I welcome back number one, New York Times bestselling master of suspense, Dean Kuntz, whose latest book, The Other Emily, will take you on a twisting journey of lost love, impossible second chances, and terrifying promises. I had a great time talking with uh, Dean Kuntz about his work, about uh, The Other Emily, which features one of the creepiest serial killer characters that I've read in a while, and a lot more. So stay tuned for that interview coming up. But first, make sure to visit thrillingreads.com forward slash links. There you'll be able to access links of where you can rate and review this uh, podcast. You can also check out my website and join the Thrilling Reads newsletter to be notified about great thriller books and a lot more. So check it out at thrillingreads.com forward slash links. All right, here is my interview with uh, Dean Kuntz. Hi, Dean. It's Alan Peterson. Hi. How are you today? Good. Good. I'm doing good. How about yourself? I have no complaints. Uh, well, I have them, but I don't want to burden you with them. What could you do about them? <laughs> <laughs> that is true, yes. <laughs> um, well, uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to the interview. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, let, let's see how, how I uh, how I handle myself. I'm uh, I haven't had anything to drink, so I might not be that fluent. <laughs> it was a crazy year, to say the least. Uh, how have things been going for you uh, the last past year? Well, we our year was even crazier because we moved, and uh, it involved moving, uh, I think, probably over 50,000 books. Uh, and uh, uh, we still don't have most of them out of boxes because we built a library in this house, and it's... Uh, it just got finished, and we moved in here in Halloween. Maybe that was a mistake, moving in Halloween. But uh, uh, we moved in then, and uh, we've been. I, it's been very difficult because I can't reach all the books that I normally get to when I'm writing a book of my own, and uh, uh, so all my resources have been locked away, and I've had to find other ways to get what I need. But it's starting to resolve at last. So, uh, so I will just move forward. Wow, 50,000 books. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's after we culled. I I can't give books away. Even if I, I get one, I don't like it. I keep it. And Jared always said, well, you didn't even like that book. You couldn't finish it. Why, why are you keeping it? And I said, well, I, I can always know if I'm looking for a predictor example of why something doesn't work. I'll remember this book and I'll go get it. And I finally realized... Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, when do I need an example of what doesn't work? It's uh, so. Uh, so I started getting rid of the books that I never liked, and that that got us sorted down to this number. But I am an obsessive compulsive collector, so uh, so the collection will probably grow again. Yeah, I don't have near that many, but uh, my wife's always saying the same thing too. Eh, can we get rid of these books? I'm like, well, not yet. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so your latest book, The Other Emily, is uh, set to uh, for publication March 23rd, and uh, really excited. I got a, a copy of it and have been enjoying it uh, very much, 
And um, I'm kind of curious because you you have so many bestsellers, so many classic books. Do you still get nervous during book launch? <laughs> uh, not not so much the uh, the book launch. I get nervous all the way through the writing of it. I'm yeah you know, because I I like to change up a lot. I like to move to different things instead of repeating the same thing all the time. Uh, I get into a book and then start to think well, I'm screwing this up. Uh, this one isn't going to work. And uh, that self-doubt creeps back in. So by the time the book is done and we're heading toward publication, I'm I'm so relieved about that book because they actually liked it when I delivered it that the tension about the launch is gone. Instead, I'm all locked up on what I'm doing wrong or think I am in the current book. So. No, so that's a great lesson for writers out there, that that, that feeling never goes away because someone in your level <laughs> feels that way. <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, I used to wish that it, I didn't, but then I figured, well, it's also what keeps you honest about it. And uh, if ever you felt that every word you wrote was golden, you'd probably be in trouble. <laughs> and so can you tell us a little bit about the other Emily? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll combine that with how the book came to be because that is the easiest way of telling you what it is. But I, I, the first thing that came to me, what about a story of a guy who met the love of his life when they were twenty, in their early twenties or late teens, and when they were twenty-five, she disappeared and always was thought to be the victim of a serial killer, um, and he has been. Deep in guilt ever since because he should have been with her the night that she disappeared and he wasn't. And he's in guilt and grief that don't quite go away, especially the guilt. It's now 10 years later and he walks into a bar or a restaurant and and there sitting at the bar is this woman. Uh, it is unquestionably her. She's identical. But when he sits down beside her and says, where have you been? he suddenly realizes she hasn't aged. She's 25 years old. And that was the first little thing about where does what story I want to write next. I thought that would be kind of fun. But then, of course, well, where has she been? And I thought, well, what if the serial killer who confessed to a serious number of murders and revealed where the bodies were also said that he killed others but wouldn't say where they were because he had preserved them to reanimate them if ever he was caught and he got out of prison, he would have a group of girls already prepared for him. Of course, he's insane, but this element that he supposedly could preserve people uh, starts playing a role as our lead talks to him in prison. And our character starts to have to think, uh, if she didn't die, where has she been all these years? And if she did die, what is she? Uh, and that really got my uh, engine cranking to say, because I thought, oh, this is this has got the right kind of quality about it. And uh, and then when she starts to play games with him and to tease him, and I won't go into how, uh, it opens the door to uh, all kind of possibilities of who and what she is. And then at the last moment before I started writing, I thought, really, what this could be is a retelling of the Orpheus and, uh, uh, legend about where he goes uh, to hell to win back the uh, the woman he lost. And uh, and so that became a sort of more, uh, modern retelling of the Orpheus legend. 
to an extent. And uh, at that point, I was ready to go. I couldn't possibly not write the book. Oh, wow. So based on a classic one. That's a, that's so cool. So like like updating it kind of. <laughs> yeah, it didn't instantly start out that way. But as it as I... As the story was forming in my mind, I thought, well, it certainly has, it resonates with that. So, so at some point, he, he doesn't literally go to hell to get her back, uh, but he goes into a kind of hell in, in, the, in our world. And it's, uh, um, so it was fun. But, and it was totally different than anything I've written in quite a long time. So that also kept me going. Yeah, David Thorne is, um, uh, successful writer um was he based on you at all and did you find that it was easy to base a character uh, based on your profession uh i've used writers before sometimes i i think sometimes i I use them because i kind of i think okay i understand that part of that character um and uh, and then it does allow you it's kind of lazy thing too because it allows you to have a writer who doesn't have a job to go to. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. when he gets caught up in the story, he can just go with it. Um, but often I use bartenders or a landscaper, as in the husband, or bartenders in Velocity, or, or a fry cook, as in Odd Thomas. I like to use every day. I, I don't often uh, use a main character as something like a an FBI agent. I did that with Jane Hawk, but she's a rogue FBI agent from the first page of the first novel. Uh, and I, I, I don't like to use characters who are uh, sort of contemporary supermen, meaning law enforcement officers who you know are always going to turn out to win the case. I like to use more uh, average Americans as the characters. But when I do go for somebody a little other than that kind of profession, it tends to be a writer, I guess. But uh, uh, David Thorne, I, I don't know how much I, uh, uh, I I identify with him. One thing I do identify with is he learns very young uh, that um, the thing you should most fear in life is not your own death, but the death of, of those you love. And that's something I had come to by that time I was uh, his age in the book. So to that extent, he's probably... Uh, a little bit me. Yeah, that part, the, the the love story part of the book, um, you could really feel the heartache and guilt that David goes through. So that you kind of drew that out of your own uh, relationship. Yeah, because we all make mistakes in our lives and mm-hmm. wish we hadn't, and so not necessarily as uh, as uh, egregious a mistake as he makes when he's twenty five, <laughs> but uh, with the consequence that arose from it. But uh, but we all make mistakes, so yeah, you explore some of that in yourself as you're as you're writing a character like that. And also, you mentioned the serial killer Ronnie Lee Jessup. Um, he was such a great, uh, creepy character. Um, is he based on a real serial killer? How do you tap into that? <laughs> uh, I've done so much research into people who are, well, uh, not every sociopath is a serial killer, but every serial killer is a sociopath. And I've done a lot of uh, research into sociopaths. Uh, my own father late in life was identified uh, second time he ended up in a psych ward as sociopathic, which had explained my childhood in a way I never had been able to explain it before. Uh, and so I know a lot about that kind of personality. Uh, but uh, 
Ronnie Lee Jessup came, sort of, when he came on the page, this big teddy bear of a guy, uh, that I hadn't seen before. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Let me see what I can make out of this. I have a friend who's, he writes nonfiction, uh, but uh, he always, I send him the advanced proofs of a book. And uh, I suddenly got this phone call one night and he said, oh my God, this guy is the creepiest character you've ever written. <laughs> and I said, thank you. <laughs> it seems a little odd to be thanking somebody. He said, well, you've created a lot of creepy ones. And I said, yeah, I know, but there is something about this guy um, uh, that is, is d- different than any I've uh, approached before and is consequently a, uh, uh, creepy in a different way. Yeah, I like reading the books about uh, with the creepy killers, and this is one of the top ones out there. <laughs> that lair of his in the house. I don't want to give too much away, but that was uh, where do you get the blueprint for that? It's uh, well, it comes out of his personality. He is this uh, uh, psychopathic romanticist, actually, and uh, he, he's uh, he has this strange delusional life of himself as as a uh, as a lover and so forth, and it's uh, 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 trying to imagine how he would combine the the lust for power and this sense of himself as this uh, almost sweet mama's boy and what that lair would look like. That's where you start having to dip into your imagination and uh, and and try to think. Okay, uh, and when I use the word he's romantic, I don't mean just in a sense of man woman or romantic in the traditional sense uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, seeing romance in in everything or seeing a, uh, a different uh, layer uh, to the to the world that he finds charming and tries to emulate but of course doesn't have the capacity for it because his uh, his lust for power will always dominate as it does with any sociopath yeah there's some fascinating uh, tonal shifts and genre mashups in this book that, that you're so famous for um, are those I, I remember I remember you don't you don't outline so do those um, twists and turns do they relieve to you as you're writing it and it surprise you in this one now I don't want to give away what the resolution to this is but mm-hmm. in this one uh, I knew I had to figure out in the first quarter of the book or sooner, uh, what what is the explanation of why she hasn't aged, and who is she really? When when he presses her early in the book uh, about uh, what she does and everything, she tells him she's an assassin, and he takes this to be a word game or sort of game she's playing with him at the at the bar on their first, or I forget if it's his first or second date. I think it's the second date. First, first date, but second time he sees her. And, uh, and that, I started having her claim to be assassin, but I knew she really was going to be something like that. But I still didn't know the explanation of why she hasn't aged and all the rest. But uh, I thought if I don't have that by 25% of the way through the book, I got to stop and not write this book because I'm going to get three quarters of the way and still not have it. And then it, it started coming to me uh, of, of what it was. And as soon as I got it, I thought, oh, this could be fun. Uh, it, it makes it one of those cross-genre books uh, 
that uh, when I first started doing this 40 years ago, publishers hated. Uh, I said, you can't do this. Nobody does this. And I said, I I love to read in all these genres, and I don't want to write in just one of them. So uh, um, they've since gotten very used to it. The word mashups now is very common, but... Uh, I didn't invent that word. Sometimes it said I invented the cross-genre novel. I don't know if I did or not, but um, I will say I certainly struggled with publishers in the early days uh, who didn't want to see anything like that. But now they roll with it very well. And uh, my uh, team at uh, Thomas and Mercer have just been delightful about this. I've given them some three I'm working toward the end of the fourth, three books that have all to one extent or another really cross genres, and they've been very enthusiastic about it. So that's that's lovely. Yeah, your last uh, f- uh, few books have all been uh, standalones. Do you prefer the standalone, or do you miss writing a series? Uh, series are... Uh, you know, one thing I find it very hard, I would find it very hard to do, is write the kind of series that I think readers actually prefer, which every book is sort of a standalone. It just has the same characters, and they're different cases. It's like what I would call network broadcast. Uh, if you're writing something that somebody wants to do as a streaming series, it'll be totally different than a broadcast network would do it. The broadcast network would turn it into a case of the week sort of story, which is why I'd never let uh, Thomas be a broadcast network show. But if it could be a, a streaming series, then it would be a different, handled in an entirely different way. I don't think I could write a series that everyone was a standalone case. I tend to write series like with Jane Hawk, whether Frankenstein or Odd Thomas, where there's an overriding arc. Uh, And some readers don't like that because they find the series in book number three, and then they realize, well, there are things here I've missed. Uh, uh, And they'd rather a series be one they can get into and not have missed anything. So I don't think at my age I'll go on writing more series. But then again, if you hit a a character and you see the arc and you can't resist it, then perhaps I will. But I think they'll mostly be standalones from now on. I like to see it like never say never, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, a popular advice I hear a lot from novelists is to write that quick first draft. And then I was looking at reading your website and you're kind of the opposite of that. Can you explain a little bit about your process and how do you um, cl- generate a clean draft? Well, now, I'll preface this by saying the way I work, the way anybody works, is the way that works for them. Uh, uh, The way I work might not work for anybody else. Uh, I started out writing outlines, uh, and I don't. I haven't for years. Uh, Not since, well, the last book, first book I did without an outline was Strangers many, many years ago. And I've never used an outline since. and I don't do, I used to do first drafts, and I stopped doing that even before Strangers. And I fell into this habit of uh, writing a draft of the first page over and over and over until I had that page polished to the level I could polish it to. And then I would move on to page two. And this was partly my way of dealing with self-doubt. Uh, when I had that page and I knew it was as close to perfect, at least as I could make it, then I could approach the next page and the doubt would come back. But once you get 
to 70, 80, 100 pages, the doubt is less and less because you've got so much momentum going on. And and you don't feel like you've just got a bad first draft you've got to fix. Uh, also, I found that working that way, when you fly through something on a quick draft, you often do things that are the easiest and quickest thing that comes to your mind. And then once you have the draft, there is a real temptation not to undo those bad things because you're going to have to undo so much that connects to them. And I'm just afraid with me anyway, it would lead to a lot of things that I should have cut out of that draft or found new avenues for advancing the storyline. I would not do because it would be too difficult after having that first draft finished. Uh, so this has worked for me. Uh, it's how I do it, and I just inch my way through the book. One thing I've said is uh, one thing this does that's great is you realize problems that are coming in the narrative as you have a character. that for It may rise out of the character. It may rise out of the storyline as it's a thing. Maybe you're at age 50 and you think, oh, crap, there's going to be this moment I don't know if it's 30 pages or 50 pages or 60 pages, but it's down the road somewhere. And I'm going to have to explain this about this character or this situation. And at that moment, I can't imagine how I can. But if you, I just keep writing at this pace and polishing and polishing, the subconscious is working on it. And when I get to that point where now... How do I resolve this problem? I find out I've resolved it, or I've given myself three or four options to resolve it, and the problem turns out not to be a problem after all. So that's an advantage of taking your time to get through the story. Um, it it, uh, it gives you more time to sink into it and more thoroughly understand it. Yeah, you have such an amazing work ethic, too. I, I recall you saying you work like uh, 10, 11 hours days. So you write every day? I write. I try to write six days a week. Uh, if it's right at the end of the book and things are flowing well, I, I've been known to go to seven. Uh, I would like to, at my age, get back to four or five, <laughs> so, uh, mm-hmm. because uh, I'd, I'd rather not be putting in all those hours a week. Uh, but um, as long as you love what you do, um, it uh, it's as much play as it is work. And uh, so in that sense, I'm so fortunate. I don't complain about the long hours very much. And uh, actually, a 10-hour day, there's a lot of people in their jobs put in 10 hours a day, 50, 60 hours a week, especially if you count in commuting and all that sort of thing pre-COVID. Uh, so it's it's given the reward there's been in my life for this. Uh, I I don't need to complain about the hours, uh, and to some extent, I enjoy them. You know, I really looking at the cover of the other Emily and Devoted and Elsewhere. They're so great covers. Do you have input in that process? You know, I have for years not been happy with my covers. Uh, or I have not been happy with the quality of the bindings and the paper and a lot of things. Uh, I thought that uh, a lot of New York publishing has gotten less quality product at more money, and it's it's been something I was complaining about to no effect for a long time. Uh, 
one of the things that amazed me when I came to Thomas and Mercer is the quality of their bindings, the quality of their paper. Uh, When I did Devoted, and here they had a design on the boards of the book, you take the jacket off, and there's this interesting design there. And I said, wow, I mean, they only do that on rare instances in in New York publishing anymore. And they said, well, you know, people lose dust jackets, so they damage them. And we would like to think that they can still have the book on their shelf and it's pretty when you pull it off. And I said, well, that's my attitude, but you just don't see that anymore. And then the uh, the covers they've been devising, uh, they show me covers and I can say, there's this element I think could be, be improved. But for the most part, the cover's 90% there when they show it to me. And uh, I, I thought uh, I thought all of these have been great. The only thing uh, I thought devoted before they printed it on foil was a prettier cover because the colors were more vibrant. Elsewhere is a gorgeous cover, and uh, and the other Emily is suitably creepy uh, with that wonderful thing of the calla lilies coming up among the roots, and it, it it carries the two qualities of the book. So I've been just stunned at how good their book design is, but also how how um, how as an obsessive collector, I really like getting books that are well bound and well designed, and uh, so it's it's been a lot of fun to work with them on on this, and and not to be agitated when I see what the design is and say, wow, this is cool. Yeah, so now you're looking forward to it versus the past. You might be uh, dreading looking at the cover. <laughs> Yes, yes. Um, so what's next for you? What are you working on now? I'm working on a book. Uh, I, I think the title will stay there, but I, I think I probably shouldn't mention that title. But it's it's a little more, uh, it's, you know, suspense and, uh, and pretty darn spooky in some ways. But it's also like Life Expectancy or the Odd Thomas books. It's also got a large element of humor in it. And uh, I, I think I drifted to that because the other Emily has almost no humor in it. And uh, uh, aside from a private detective that our lead speaks to on the phone a few times, it's 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 a kind of dark story most of it. So I'm on one now about a a, a man who uh, uh, he's three days old. He's found in the middle of an Arizona highway in a very remote part of Arizona desert. Uh, well, the biggest town is the town nearby called Pepto, and uh, and it's 906 people. And he's found in the middle of the three-lane federal highway in a bassinet at the age of three. Uh, and nobody knows who he is, where he came from. Uh, and uh, he ends up in an orphanage in Phoenix, uh, and we pick up his story 19 years later, uh, and uh, he, I, I don't want to give this away. Uh, let's just say he, he sends his, he spits in a cup and sends it to something called Getting to Know Me, which is the equivalent of Ancestry.com or something like that. And what comes back is pretty strange. And uh, suddenly he finds himself on the run and uh and it's it's amusing, but it's also scary, and it's kind of a semi-apocalyptic story. So, ooh, that sounds awesome! Can't wait for that one. 
it's uh, well, let's see. It's a lot. I've discovered I bit off a lot, and I'm having trouble chewing it. But we'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for taking time to talking to us and uh, telling us about your work and the other Emily. Um, very excited. Uh, it's a great book, and, uh, and people should go out and get it right now. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Therefore, I don't have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. If you have a moment, please do check out thrillingreads.com forward slash links, where you'll be able to rate and review this podcast, or simply rate this podcast wherever it is that you're listening to it, uh, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, Amazon Music, uh, whichever podcast app you prefer, uh, please take a moment to rate this uh, podcast. It's the best way to help other fans of uh, mystery and thriller books to find the uh, podcast. And uh, it helps me get the word out. And so it's the best way to support the podcast. So I do appreciate that. And if you're interested, you can join my Thrilling Reads mailing list. You'll find the uh, sign up form at thrillingreads.com forward slash links. Once you subscribe for free, you'll be notified about discounts and deals on great books in the mystery, thriller, and crime fiction genres. You'll also find my social media links and my author website over at thrillingreads.com forward slash links. So check it out and say hi. All right. Take care and stay safe until we meet again on the next episode of Meet the Thriller Author.